Sentire Media. Hello everyone, you're listening to A History of Italy. Episode 62, The Battle of Legnano. Last time, we heard about the failed attempt of the siege of Alessandria by Holy Roman Emperor Frederick Barbarossa in 1175, and the subsequent attempt at peace talks that failed after a standoff at Montebello, near Pavia, with the army of the League, which had brought together citizens from over a dozen different cities in northern Italy. Almost immediately after the failed peace talks, Frederick had sent letters to Germany to request reinforcements, and soon enough, the bishops of Köln and Magdeburg had raised around 2,000 knights and made their way very quickly down to Italy without the hindrance of troops on foot. So, they showed up in Italy in the late spring of 1176. Listeners will remember that Frederick had managed to get the city of Como to switch sides, and this had allowed the reinforcements to take a more direct route through the Alps and pop up closer to Milan, and then make their way to Como. Frederick at this point made a very daring move, and took all of the knights on horseback he had with him, between 500 and 1,000, and very daringly crossed through enemy Milanese territory to join his reinforcements in Como. All of this the arrival of the reinforcements from Germany and Frederick's move to join them took the Milanese completely by surprise. This came at a time when the city was still under quite a bit of shock because on the 18th of April, the bishop of the city, Galdino della Sala, had died. He had been a strong opposer of Frederick and had been an important inspiration in the rebuilding of the city. The city authorities had been faced with a choice between a pro and an anti-imperial bishop, and in the end, the long-standing Milanese tradition of just not liking the emperor won out, and they elected Umberto Crivelli. Now, the emperor was once again in the vicinity. They quickly assembled troops in Milan. They were now faced with a difficult choice. They could either wait for the reinforcements from the rest of the League and let the Emperor go by, or they could attack him with what they had, taking advantage of his reduced numbers of only knights before he could reunite with the rest of his infantry near Pavia. On the 28th of May, 1176, the army of the League, composed mostly at this point of Milanese infantry and some knights, as well as a few men from Brescia and Verona, moved out to meet the emperor. At this point, it would be good to have some dramatic music, but I'm not very good with putting in dramatic music, so you'll have to use your imagination, something like dum da da dum da da dum da da dum or something like that. Also, if you do it in your head, there will be no copyright issues. Meanwhile, the emperor moved down to Cairate, 
a pro-imperial stronghold under the authority of the Benedictine Monastery of Santa Maria, which in turn was under the control of the bishop of pro-imperial Pavia. From there, he intended to head across the Olorna River and to meet his troops in Pavia. Frederick and his men were all on horseback, while the Milanese on foot, pulling the heavy carroccio, the war cart bearing the communal insignia behind them. Luckily for the communal army, they were travelling along well-kept roads, while Barbarossa along difficult terrain. The army of the League arrived in Lignano and decided that they would stop there. From that position, indeed, they could block the Emperor's way to Milan as well as his way down to Pavia. They were also close to their base of operations. Barbarossa was trapped between the Lorna and Ticino rivers. The terrain was also favourable, with rolling hills and a series of natural barriers such as ditches and small crops of wood, yet open enough to allow a large infantry army to spread out. They got there so long before Barbarossa, they even had time for prayers around the Carroccio. Maybe even a picnic with sandwiches, I mean, who knows. The Carroccio, being of great symbolic importance, as well as a tactical reference point, was made visible all over the field, behind the lines, and placed on a slight hill. All they had to do now was wait. Dramatic music increases in volume here, by the way. Barbarossa sent a large scouting party ahead of around 300 knights. The League also sent a force of around 700. The nature of the terrain was what caused the first clash. As the Imperial force rounded a corner, their line of sight being blocked by a wood, they suddenly came across the communal forces. Despite coming up against a more numerous foe, the legendary discipline of the German knights took over and allowed them to tactfully retreat in good order, luring the communal knights into a trap. Indeed, they led them back to Frederick's main force, where the numbers were very much in his favour. The League horsemen were routed and fled back to Milan. Barbarossa had won the first clash of the day. Spurred by the enthusiasm of their victory, the imperial troops moved on and finally came to the main body of the communal army. Now, those of you who are generally interested in history will have heard time and time again how hard it was to have precise numbers in medieval battles. Well, it was hard to have precise numbers in medieval battles. The best estimates put the imperial presence between 2,500 and 3,000 knights on horseback. The army of the League could have been around 12,000, both infantry and knights on foot, in a long line, around three, maybe four men deep, spread out over a few kilometres, with their deadly sharp lances twinkling in the sunlight. Indeed, the battle began at around nine in the morning of a sunny spring day. It would have looked like a metal forest of impending death. 
Even having seen off the advanced communal column of around seven hundred men, Frederick was still outnumbered about four to one. At this point, the question is: Why did the battle take place at all? Why didn't the emperor, upon seeing the overwhelming odds, not just turn and head back to Como? Basically, he had no choice. If he had gone back to Como, he would have been surrounded by enemy cities, besieged by the army he had fled from, with reinforcements coming to help them all the time from northern Italy. From there, he could only have gone back over the Alps and headed back to Germany. Then, after the failure of the siege of Alessandria and the failure to engage in the Battle of Montebello, and now Legnano, how could he have once again convinced the German nobles to follow him into Italy once again, especially with the prospect of very little gain? What about his Italian allies? If he headed back now. Como, Pavia, and Tortona would have been left to the mercy of the League. How could he have then got other cities on his side, having abandoned them? Then there was the major cultural issue: Frederick's knights, the Teutonic knights, were part of the nobility, the men and women that God Himself had put on this earth to rule over all the other forms of life. Plus, their heads were full of great adventures and heroes, and literally fashion that Empress Beatrix had done much to spread in Germany. Could these men, God's chosen rulers, the heroes of legend, turn and walk away from a battle with what they saw as little more than peasants? So it was that Frederick Barbarossa did not turn back. He laid out his knights in a long line, almost the length of the communal lines. Then came the thunder, the first charge. In that period of the Middle Ages, there was nothing more formidable, more shock and awe, than the charge of heavy cavalry. It was a weapon of mass destruction before any other was invented. However, it also wasn't. Indeed. It was the shock and awe factor, and not the effectiveness of the charge itself, that could win out. The hope was to break the spirit of the defending line, to find a weak spot, to send them into a panic, so the knights could get into the breach that opened and take them from the sides or cut them down as they fled. As a matter of fact, this didn't often happen in the first charge. But after the nerves of the defenders had been worn down by charge after charge of the thundering hooves, the clashing armor, and the war cries, otherwise no horse wished to fling himself upon the forest of metal in front of them. The first line would have been kneeling, with shield covering almost all of their body, with a lance of around two meters. With the second row, bristling behind them. So, in the early stages, there were very few casualties, only those that could not stop their horse in time, or who lost their patience and fell onto the enemy line. Having said this, there was a very bad omen for the emperor. In these early stages, one of the few to fall 
was Frederick's standard bearer. The man fell, as did the standard, and it was lost for the rest of the battle. The only reference point the troops now had was the emperor himself on his horse. Wave after wave broke on the defenders. They did not falter. To hold them in position, there was another factor besides the usual camaraderie among soldiers. The communal troops were grouped first by area, then by town, and by parish. So, the men you would have around you were your neighbours, your friends, and your family. You were a lot less likely to make a run for it. Even if you did, could you have then gone back to your village and lived among those you had abandoned on the field? The line held, the day drew on, and the sun beat down on the soldiers. At this point, things are a little hazy. What is clear is that sometime just before 3pm, the forces of the League counterattacked. Paolo Grillo, in his book Legnano 1176, proposed the idea that the Imperial troops had dismounted, which makes sense. It wasn't at all rare for knights to dismount and fight with a sword instead of their lances, and by this time they would have realised that the continued charges were going nowhere. It would also have explained why the forces of the League decided to risk leaving their secure position for the attack. Shortly afterwards, what was left of the first 700 knights who had initially met the Imperials and then fled to Milan, returned to attack the Imperial flank. So it could also have been this that prompted the main force to attack. At this point, under attack on two fronts, the German troops could only move in around their emperor and hope to resist until nightfall, when they could leave the field under the cover of darkness. Barbarossa fought bravely, leading by example, as was the norm for leaders at that time. This obviously was very good for the morale of the troops, but it meant that he lost the global vision of the battle and put himself at great risk. The emperor, still on horseback, if anyone else had dismounted at all, fell and was lost to the sight of his men. At this point, the troops broke. Some fled, others surrendered, Others were killed. Those that fled tried to get across the Ticino River to the west. Not all of them made it across. The bishops of Colm and Magdeburg, who had not been in the thick of the fighting, were able to get back to Como and from there back to Germany. The communal troops held the field. They captured all the baggage train with their equipment and riches, and they also held the standard, the lance and the shield of the Emperor. Not a bad haul at all. But what of the Emperor himself? Nobody knew. A week passed. In Pavia the Empress was dressed in mourning, and the kingdom of Frederick was astir. It is at this time that the Emperor showed up. He had made his way first to Como after the battle, and then in disguise, through enemy lines, back to Pavia. At the age of 54, Frederick Barbarossa was still alive. 
Now, at the Battle of Legnano, Barbarossa had obviously been the undisputed leader and general of the imperial army. But who was in command of the troops of the League? On first thought, you might say, well, who cares? It's a perfect example of the whole great men in history versus social and economic forces and the power of the people. A long-standing historical debate in which most cowardly historians say that the truth lies somewhere in the middle. I personally think that the truth lies somewhere halfway between the two. Anyway, the issue of who was commanding the communal troops actually is important to this day for the following reason. Let me take you back to the almost present, particularly the European elections that were held on the 29th of May 2019. Interestingly, that is the exact date of the Battle of Legnano. Anyway, in that election, the League, not the Lombard League of 1176, obviously, but the far-right anti-immigration party led by Matteo Salvini, obtained a historical 34%. This was big. Already at the previous political elections, they had reached 17%, while before that, they had never gone above 10% except in local elections. The news cameras were pointed at the party headquarters, waiting for some announcement or news on what you could call a victory for them. At a certain point, a hand popped out of a lit window and stuck a little statue on the sill. It was of a man dressed in armour with a pointed helmet, holding aloft a long, sharp sword. This was a replica of the statue that you can find today in the town of Legnano, of Alberto da Giussano, who is one of the symbols of the League Party, and for centuries was believed to have been the leader of the communal troops at the Battle of Legnano. More precisely, he was supposed to have been the commander of the Compagnia della Morte, the Company of Death, who had sworn to oppose the emperor until their last breath. Any one of them who had tried to retreat would have been killed instantly. Well, Alberto da Giussano, or his company of death, was not at the Battle of Legnano. What's more, neither seemed to have actually existed at all. At least historians have found no trace of them in contemporary sources. The man and his company seem to have been invented around 150 years later, around 150 years later, by a monk called Galvano Fiamma. This was a time when the communal period was passing into that of the Signorie, when the great families were gradually taking over the cities, so it sounded a bit better to have a great heroic leader. Fiamma gives us further proof of his unreliability, claiming that the battle was won because three doves took flight from the statues of three saints and alighted upon the carroccio. When Barbarossa saw this, he took it as a sign of God's favour towards his enemy and gave up. The legend of Alberto da Giussano was later reinforced in the Risorgimento, the period that led to the unification of Italy in 1861. 
He was perfect, an Italian hero fighting against a foreign tyrant. And what's more, it was a German tyrant, and the enemy at the time of the Risorgimento were the Austrians, which obviously were not the same thing, but, you know, close enough for all practical purposes. In that time, it was unpatriotic to doubt the existence of Dajusano. After the enthusiasm of the unification waned, in 1914, historian Rinaldo Beretta was the first to disprove the existence of the great hero. At this point, however, we have raised the issue. Who was actually in command of the army at Legnano? Surely they didn't all decide to wake up on the morning of the 28th and head off to Legnano, or then on the 29th have a big vote about how to array and where to set up and so on. The analysis of the documents before and after Legnano lead us to believe that the leader, or one of the leaders, of the League at the battle was a man by the name of Guido da Landriano. In January of 1176, five months before the battle, he appeared in a meeting of League representatives representing Milan. Then, he was first on the list to sign the oath taken by the representatives of the League seven years later when they swore to accept the terms of the coming peace treaty with Barbarossa. At said peace treaty, he was the first to pass in front of the emperor. We'll talk about that next time. Guido d'Alandriano would also have had a rather meaty bone to pick with the emperor. We have already gone back to the siege of Crema of 1160, when Frederick used prisoners as human shields to defend his siege tower. Well, among those killed in this way was a man named Enrico, Enrico da Landriano, brother of Guido. Whoever led the troops of the Lombard League, they secured a great victory at Legnano that would put an end to the attempt to recreate the great Carolingian Empire, a victory that would resound through the ages to modern Italian politics. Barbarossa would not be back at the head of an army in Italy for ten years, and then, ironically, it was on the side of Milan and against his old ally Cremona. For now, let us leave the communes basking in the glow of their great victory. Two radically different ways of conceiving the organization of the state had clashed, and history had passed its verdict. As always, thanks very much to everyone for listening. Thanks in particular to my lovely Patreon supporters, the Anita and Giuseppe Garibaldi level, Bill, Ed, Eric W, Jeff, Joshua, Sean and Jimmy, the Matilda Di Canossa and Giuseppe Mazzini level, Aaron, Benjamin, Eric, R, Lorenzo, Maddie, Mattia, Roberta, Scott and YR, the Margarita Hack and Galileo Galilei level, Anthony, Ben, Silane, Chris, Daniel, Dean, Ignazio, Jay, Caitlin, Kevin, Shelby, Stephen, and Vincent, and the top level, Maria Montessori, and Dante Alighieri level, Sen, Paolo, and Reactionary Venetian. Thank you, thank you to one and all, 
And welcome aboard to new Patreon supporter, Thomas. Welcome to the family, Thomas. I would also like to thank Scott for a glowing Apple podcast review. You are really too kind, Scott. Thank you very much. Remember, you can get in touch. Hello at ahistoryofitaly.com. At the same URL, ahistoryofitaly.com, you can click through to our social media. We are on Facebook and Twitter, and you can look at maps, timelines, and other sources to help navigate our country's complicated history. Until next time, thanks again to everyone, and arrivederci. Right, men. Next wave of cavalry ready. And... Wait, what's that? What, sire? That in the sky. Uh, the white things flying towards the enemy line. They seem to be doves, sir. Can we proceed with the attack now? No, wait. Look. They are landing on the war wagon. Yes, sire. They are very pretty birds. Shall we proceed with the attack? No, 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 no. Don't you see? It is a sign from God. The birds, sire? Yes, he obviously favours the Lombards in this battle. I'm calling it off. What? Sire, you can't really be giving in to these peasants just because some flying rats landed on their cart. I mean, one of them has even taken a dump on the altar. We must retreat. Chicken. What? Reynold, you obviously don't have my deep... Emperor Kingly Fission. It's quite clear. Let's go. Ow! Oh crap, I've fallen off my horse. Sentire Media. Hey, podcast producers and show hosts. Do you want to join a podcast network that celebrates all things Italian? At Sentire Media, we understand the allure of Italy and its unique culture. Our devoted team of hosts and producers are all driven by their shared passion for Italy, and we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy. With us, you can savor the mouth-watering flavors, get lost in the stories from the past, break down the cultural barriers, and truly immerse yourself in the vibrant traditions of this intoxicating country. If you have a great podcast idea or are already in production and would like to join Sentire Media, head over to sentiremedia.com, that's S-E-N-T-I-R-E media.com, and find out how to submit your show.